Welcome to the Long Thread Podcast about spinning, stitching, and weaving by hand. The podcast is presented by Long Thread Media, publishers of Spinoff, Handwoven, Piecework, and Little Looms magazines. Find us online at longthreadmedia.com. This episode is sponsored by Trainway Silks. You'll find the largest variety of silk spinning fibers, silk yarn, and silk threads and ribbons at trainwaysilks.com. Choose from a rainbow of hand-dyed colors. Love natural? Their array of wild silk and silk blends provide choices beyond white. Trainway Silks, where superior quality and customer service are guaranteed. I'm your host, Longthread Media co-founder, Anne Merrow. Melanie Fallick's first book was the groundbreaking Knitting in America. Since then, she's been a magazine editor and a book editor. Her most recent book is Making a Life. Well, Melanie, thanks so much for being with me today. Thanks for inviting me. I'm actually going to start in with a, with a kind of a big question, if that's okay. Your first book was Knitting in America, which was all about the craft of knitting and what it means about the nation of the United States. And your most recent book is called Making a Life, which is about a whole variety of crafts and what they mean in terms of having a good life. And those are really big, important themes. And I'm just curious how you have found craft intersects with those. That is a big question. I mean, I feel like that's what I've been celebrating, exploring, examining since the beginning of this venture. I think as soon as I, as an adult, started to knit, I really saw it as a lens through which to explore people's lives and in particular women's lives. And I think that all forms of creativity are can be lenses through which to do that. And the one that I focused on has been mostly handwork. And it started with knitting and grew outward from there. There's a wonderful quote on the back of Making a Life. Uh, It says, why do we make things by hand and why do we make them beautiful? I think that's just such an important question and and an exciting question for people who like to make things by hand. Well, yeah, I think it's basically our evolutionary birthright. I think it comes through us through our DNA. And from what we know about early humans is that they use their hands to make things in order to survive. And it was, you know, it's our hands and our opposable thumbs that have given us the ability to create all sorts of tools, whether that's things with which we can make a shelter or collect food or create clothing. But from what we can tell from the beginning of time, it wasn't just to make things serviceable, but oftentimes it was to make things special or to make the ordinary extraordinary. And it seems to me when we take that extra step of making the ordinary extraordinary, we instill our values upon it we say, this is important, this matters to us. And so we see that in terms of ritual, the cup we might use on a particular holiday, the dress we might wear to a wedding. I mean, this goes, I'm trying to give examples that we relate to in our lives today. I think all of that comes from tens of thousands, if not longer, years ago, more years ago than that. It's just a human instinct. And when I saw that connection or began to understand that connection between who I am and what I am as a human being and how I 
am rooted to the past, it made me feel much more comfortable in my own skin and much more clear on the value of what I was, what I am doing or what I have been doing. And I think in our culture, in the mainstream culture, we've gone to this point where we don't need to use our hands to survive, but we do need it to feel emotionally well. We do need to feel some connection to our survival, to our competencies, and to our own sort of creative impulses. And because we've been somewhat sidelined by mainstream culture, which focuses more on economic gain and speed, we've gotten this message that it's not important. What I'm trying to say is when I made that connection, when I was able to sort of really see it and feel it and understand it, my connection to my, my DNA and who I am as a human being, all of a sudden, I didn't feel like a square peg in a round hole in this world. I felt like, oh, this totally makes sense. I have a sensitivity to something that is really important and not everybody has that sensitivity and I'm not going to force it upon anybody, but I do see it as a pathway to wellness. And I want to share that possibility with as many people as possible. You know, as we're speaking, I realized that in a way, the very question has has sort of two elements to it. One of them, I'm, I'm sorry to say, was almost there's like a little hint of disrespect, like, oh, my gosh, you think knitting can be this important? But on the other hand, there's a recognition like I'm a knitter and you think what I do is important. And I think that we have both of those impulses that, oh, there's just this it's just this little thing that we do. How could that be important? And on the other hand, there's that sense of recognition that you spoke about recognizing yourself, but also recognizing it in each other. Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, and I said that when I started to knit in particular, I right away saw it as a way of exploring women's lives, past and present. And women's lives in particular have been ignored, downplayed, skipped over in a lot of our history and a lot of the stories that we're told about how the world has developed in the past a lot of those stories were told by men yeah. and a lot of them in our case by white men. I think that for me, looking at handwork and as I said in the beginning, primarily knitting was a way of uncovering the stories of the past and then also trying not to allow the stories of today to be buried. I was reading a essay by Ursula K. Le Guin. I haven't read a lot of her things. She mainly writes science fiction, which isn't something that I've read much. But this essay was about the tools. You know, we oftentimes we talk about human beings and how we've evolved. And then it's about the tools we use to make fire, the tools we use to make weaponry. It could be to hunt and kill an animal in order to bring food home, or it could be to hurt somebody else in order to overpower them. And in this essay, which I found so interesting, she disputed that sort of story as being kind of our like origin story. <laughs> like that's yeah. like how the world works. And she said, she wrote about the vessel and being able to create a vessel, for example, to be able to use grasses to create cordage with which you could then make a net or a basket. And the story of the 
person who went out and collected, let's say, seeds or berries into this basket doesn't feel sort of that heroic. It's not the same as killing a big animal and bringing it home. (laughs) So that story like didn't get passed down of just the heroism of picking the berries or bringing home the seeds and safeguarding them so that they could then be planted and used to nourish life going forward. I think that that is a lot of women's stories is doing these things that it's not as exciting. You know, if you tell someone I like I and then I picked the berry and then I picked like 900 more of them versus, <laughs> you know, I went out into the woods and I stabbed a mammoth. I think women's stories tend not to be at least historically as action packed in that way. And this is like when I like at night, even though I shouldn't, you know, I get tired and I'll sort of go for the low hanging fruit and like see what's on Netflix or see what's on HBO. And so often I see movies that are like beat them up or special, special effects, I should say, and thrillers. And I think this doesn't interest me at all. And it's really like the more thoughtful stories, the stories about human emotion, the stories about real relationships that interests me and which also goes back to like who's recording these stories who's telling these stories who has been in charge of this and so this feels a little convoluted but it goes back to your original question about like knitting as being representative of like who we are as human beings you know i was i was speaking with louis garcia who is a pueblo weaver he's involved with a project that works with the very tiny precious little scraps they can find of textiles. Mm -hmm. Even though they were so important, they were clothing, they were footwear, they kept you alive, they aren't preserved very well by archaeology. And and that continues. You know, we when you use up textiles, they kind of go away. And so you were talking about who writes the record. Well, there's also this element of deterioration that hides the work that women do. Yes, certainly. And if you think about that in terms of your grasses used to make basketry or, you know, hemp used to make fabric or all those types of things, there's less of that evidence. And again, less evidence yeah. of oftentimes women's stories. It's true. I was thinking recently that, you know, they say like our most base instinct or one of them is to reproduce, right? Like that's what mm-hmm. keeps the human world going, you know, like that you reproduce. And I, then I thought, well, if that's the basic instinct, then the instinct to survive would come next, right? If you create, create life, then you want to protect life. So then all the things that we have historically done, like use our hands to make tools, to make clothing, to make shelter, to collect food, to cook food, all those things that would be what we did to survive. So the fact that I think that doing handwork today has value goes back to the same thing, that that is part of our evolutionary DNA, you know, and our evolutionary birthright. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the things that we're talking about are kind of a combination of practical and embellishment. At least I, I think we're talking about baskets which have to have to hold something but then you tend to make them beautiful or clothing which has to keep you warm and we can't 
bear to leave it plain in a lot of ways. It, it has to be. Yeah, I mean, I think we're talking really for today, since we don't like literally have to make these things for physical mm-hmm. survival. And we also, sometimes it's expensive to do these things. Mm-hmm. What I'm trying to say is the process is really the important, the really important part today. And what the process mm-hmm. gives us, which is a chance to slow down, a chance to remember our ancestors, a chance to connect to the environment, a chance to sort of develop competency and all of those, you could call them fringe benefits, but I would say, no, they're actually essential parts of our lives that we're not often getting the way we used to when we had to do those things. So now we're like tapping on our keyboard or tapping on a screen on our phone and things are just appearing. It doesn't require a different kind of competency to order a basket than it does to order a sweater. And oh, I see. And we also, when we order it and it appears at our doorstep and we don't go through the process, we don't know where the resources with which that product were made came from. We don't know how extracting those resources affected the environment. We don't know the conditions of the person or people that made it. And we don't really know the environmental effect of the energy it took to get it to our doorstep. All of that is just anonymous. (laughs) So you have to actively go out and seek that kind of connection. It requires an effort to become aware and practice connection. Right. But if you actually go through the process, and what I'm saying is the process is the important part, then you develop Mm -hmm. a sense of empathy for every sort of step along the way, like in every positive or negative effect of the making of that thing. So to me, that's an important understanding for us all to have. And I think it's one that in the food world is coming to the forefront and it's starting to happen in the fashion world and textiles terms of understanding where things come from. But I also feel like understanding how it's made and all the better if you're willing to actually go through the process and go through the steps and get your hands dirty and and learn how to do it yourself. Well, there's sort of a scale and and people can come in at different levels of it. So, you know, in in your books, a lot of the, the folks that you're talking to and working with are at the highest level of their craft. And if I read it, that's a connection. And if I practice it, even though I'm not, even if I don't ever get to that level, having it in my hands and and going through that process gives me that sort of experiential benefit. But there's this whole scale from, I don't know, air quotes, ordinary makers up through really. I wouldn't, I mean, I don't want to belittle anyone that I've written about. I don't describe them as people who are who are at the highest level at all. I, I would describe them more as people who have taken agency over their own lives. They've discovered, explored, and embraced a creative passion, and they lead their lives in a way that is sometimes not in keeping with what the mainstream thinks is ideal, but they've actually created, they've made a life for themselves by design, not by default. And one frustration that I have is that when you write about someone and their work and you put it in a book, that people seem to elevate it in their minds as other. These are the lucky people. These are the especially talented people. These are the people who are different than 
I am. And I'm actually working on another book where I really am. I'm trying to deal with it isn't the right word. Share some thoughts about this because when I was working on making a life, what people made was secondary to me. Really, what was important was how they led their lives. And I feel like those people represent all of us and we can all make these choices. And I don't want people to think like, oh, if I were that lucky, if I had more money or more time or more of whatever it is that we tend to think we need, then I could have that that life. Because if you're not making something because you absolutely need it and you can't get it another way, and this is essential to your physical survival, but you are making it for the, the process. You or I, while we're talking, could order many sweaters. And some, and depending on where we live, where you live, maybe you could have it delivered today to your doorstep. <laughs> or you could yes. spend the next six months knitting one. Mm-hmm. So yeah, what I'm trying to share with people is it's how you live your life every day. And as people who feel the urge to make something with our hands, we usually want to devote a lot of time to that. And that is something to celebrate. And if we can't devote as much time as we might want to it, that's okay. Like that doesn't diminish what we're doing. And if our results are not, you know, as they don't seem as beautiful as somebody whose work you saw in a book or in a gallery, like, Uh so what? If you're not getting paid money for it, what you're creating, so what? Yeah. You are embracing your passion and doing something that is really good for you. So thinking about these issues evolved into writing this book, Making a Life. Before that, as an editor, you worked on a variety of projects. And I think first of Knits, because when I started being a knitter, you were the editor of Knits. And then later, you had an imprint as part of Stuart Chaburian Chang. And so the projects that you were working on were instructive Mm -hmm. for folks who were going to make these things themselves. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering whether you saw that as sort of a process that led to making a life or how those things fit together. Directions, here you can make this to yourself. Or, and here is somebody who's building their life around it. Yeah, I think I understood from the beginning that in the commercial world, there was room for publications that focused mainly on how to. There was more room in the consumer world for that than there was for books that were, I don't know if you want to say like more philosophical. And I think I went into it just feeling like, I love knitting, I love making things, I want to see if I can make a career where that plays a large role. I was working in publishing prior to writing Knitting in America. You know, I worked on a cooking magazine, and then I started to knit. And then I sort of shifted over trying to apply my publishing, my interest in publishing and my skills in that area, and then applying that in the knitting world. So Knitting in America was obviously my first book. And in that, I did both. I wrote about people's lives. And then I also included patterns and how to. And then that led me to write Kids Knitting, which you know is a how to knit book. But I really worked hard at putting knitting within a context. And within that context, I included, you know, where does yarn come from? Like, what are the 
sources of yarn in the natural world, primarily meaning animals and plants? And what are some of the countries around the world where different knitting traditions have developed? And then after that is when I started working at Interweave Knits. And as much as I could, I tried to put the how-to content within the context of real life. I was less interested in knitting as a fashion statement than I was in knitting as a lifestyle. Uh And I guess you could say that knitting or handwork as a lifestyle has been the piece that I've tried to weave into everything that that I've done. Uh I became known as someone who brought a little bit more of that non-how-to substance to the subject matter. And I also tried really hard to create publications that were aesthetically very pleasing and broke some of the some of the mold of what a how-to publication could look like. And that my effort to do that was at its core about bringing to the attention of more people the enriching aspects of knitting and other forms of handwork, because I felt like there were just such strong stereotypes about who knit and who crocheted and who wove and who spun and all the other things that the stereotypes that we, we still face today. And I felt like I could, I wanted to shatter some of those stereotypes in order to broaden the number of people who would be receptive not primarily because I thought, oh my gosh, they should all be knitting sweaters, but no, that they should all be benefiting from the process and from all the wonderful things that we get from it. But one of the things you were doing at Knits was making this welcoming world. So it was, handwork can be beautiful, it can be meaningful, and you want to imagine yourself in here. You want to lose yourself by picking up a pair of needles. Yeah, or find yourself. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I think that that was definitely part of the aesthetic. Certainly the book I wrote, Weekend Knitting, which I think came out just after I left Interweave. A lot of people said they wanted to like live inside of that book. I do think there is an aesthetic to a handmade life that people who do handwork are very receptive to in a really organic way. I think There are elements of that that become trendy in the design world, Mm -hmm. which is totally fine. But I think that's a different thing. You know, someone who's really interested in design versus really interested in surrounding themselves with handmade things or things that feel true to who they are as an individual rather than true to whatever is trendy. Right. You know, just going back to kids knitting. There was also a kids weaving book around the same time. And I sort of picked them both up by accident because I don't have kids. But what was inside them was just this incredibly rich, exciting, fun take on, you know, not only teaching someone to knit who doesn't know how to knit and might have, you know, less motor skills, but also if you want to invite somebody into this world, if you get to open up this world for somebody, what do you choose to put in it? And that was just so exciting. Are you talking about Sarah Sweat's book, Kids Weaving? Yes. Yeah. So I, that was one of the first books I acquired when I left Mm -hmm. Interweave and went to Abrams. And um, I wrote about Sarah in Knitting in America. And I feel like Sarah has been a a role model of mine. 
I think when I was writing Knitting in America, I, I actually went out to Colorado and met with people at Interweave to pick their brains about the knitters and spinners that they were working with. And they told me about Sarah and I wrote her a letter and she wrote me a letter back, which is how long ago it was. <laughs> you know, like we wrote a letter on a piece of paper. Yeah. <laughs> and I just remember her writing in her letter about the time she had spent like homesteading and I don't remember all the details, but like riding a horse into like this wilderness and unpacking the things and creating this life in this remote area. And it's interesting because I was so intrigued and and back then it seemed really foreign and and our culture has changed and become so much more receptive to mm -hmm. sort of homesteading instinct now, but she's definitely a trailblazer. I was actually thinking of her earlier when you talked about vessels, because one of the things she's working on now is knitting vessels. Yes, I've seen those on Instagram. Just all kinds of different explorations and finding a different way of living. One of the things that I loved as a book editor, because you and I have not had the same path, but we have certain similar elements of having been magazine editors and also book editors. And one of the things that I loved is what you're talking about, where you get to work with just these amazing people and help them bring out what they want to say. Mm -hmm. So even though I'm not a particularly great crafter, getting to work with these people who have these wonderful lives or have, have set up their life and their craft to be so enriching, I just found that so exciting. Did you like that element? I did. And I don't want to forget your question, but I want to just back up for a second. You said I'm not a, that you're not a great crafter, which sort of shatters all my efforts to sort <laughs> of <laughs> to say... What is your definition of great? Do you enjoy the process? Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, now I feel silly, but I'm glad that I feel silly because you give you an opportunity to correct me. Well, no, I am correct. <laughs> I just want to say, like, I feel like for all of us, being perfect or creating mm -hmm. something that equals something else you've seen, mm -hmm. you know, those could be goals, but... It's everything along the way that is the real treasure. You know, and it's interesting when I, when I say I'm not a great crafter, one of the things I often say is good knitters rip, that it's being willing to go back and take something out. And I think when I feel like I'm not a great crafter, it's because I often think I'm not willing to do the work to improve, make something better. Iterate. I totally understand that. And I've definitely had those kinds of feelings. Mm -hmm. But when we, use that kind of language, I think we, we kind of lose the important thread mm -hmm. of all of this. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you feel this way, but we just, I think there's just these voices around us about how we're supposed to do things. Mm -hmm. And they're not always reliable voices. Mm -hmm. And you obviously like to make things with your hands. You've devoted a lot of time to it, I assume. Yes. <laughs> And it brings you satisfaction. Yes. And if you were, let's say, jogging, mm -hmm. you wouldn't feel like you needed to run a marathon to say that that was valuable. You wouldn't feel like you needed to qualify for the Olympics to say that that time was well spent. Mm -hmm. You would just be doing it for your health. But there is something different about trying to get better. And I, I hear what I interpret what you're saying to mean, don't let that sort of judgment sap the value out of it. But at the same time, part of 
having a meaningful crafting life, I think, is working on iterating, improving, getting closer to your vision. Do you do you think that's true? If that's what your goal is. And definitely I have, as I've gotten older, as my time has become more my own now that my son is living on his own mm-hmm. and I have more time, I'm definitely trying to step back and pay more attention and fix things. Mm-hmm. So I, I understand that completely. And it's, I just have a problem with the language that we use to describe what we do when it, we put ourselves down and think our work is lesser because it doesn't reach some standard that we've really artificially applied. There's that expression that comparison is the thief of joy. And lately I've been playing with the idea that judgment is the thief of my joy. Right. And we, I think if you're on the yoga mat or you're, you know, the idea is like, you're just, it doesn't matter like how well you balanced yesterday or did downward dog Mm -hmm. last week. Like it's just all about being present right here, right now, today on this mat. And there's so such important lessons to be learned in that. Mm-hmm. And I think if we could soften in our judgment of ourselves as makers, there would be a lot to be learned there too. And so I kind of took your question in another direction. <laughs> no, I'm really glad you did. I, I'm really glad you did. Um, yeah. And so I'm not, I'm not trying to, I, I hope it doesn't come off as me judging you. It's just pointing out something that I feel we, Many of us, Mm -hmm. I would even venture to say most of us do, and we apply it to the stuff we make. And and there are people who go to yoga class and are always comparing, but we understand in that context Mm -hmm. that that's not the most healthy choice. Mm -hmm. So if we could have a little bit more awareness of when we're doing it to ourselves as makers, I think it would help us as individuals. And it would also help us in terms of spreading the message of all there is to all the benefits we can get from this, because it used to be knitting was the new yoga. Like we, yoga was like this weird (laughs) thing when I was growing up and then it became more popular. And now there's yoga studios all over the place and there's yoga apps and all, and people recognize the benefit of it. And knitting, you know, was supposed to be the new yoga, but it hasn't I don't think it's infiltrated the mainstream in the same way that yoga has. Mm -hmm. And I would like the benefits of handwork and the accessibilities of opportunities to do it, to reach the mainstream. It's interesting that you say that because I think there's probably a lot more people who practice handwork than practice yoga, but we're not connecting to the full range of possibilities, I think, with handwork and knitting. Or we're not connecting to mainstream culture Mm -hmm. as much. Mm -hmm. And I do think when I did Knitting in America, which was, you know, a very large format, heavily photographed, beautiful coffee table type book, I saw it as public relations. Hmm. You know, at that time, there weren't books about living American knitters that got that luxurious treatment, which implied some degree of specialness. Mm -hmm. And by the same token, when I did kids knitting, although there were other books out there on how to knit, of course, I didn't think they were good PR to children because they didn't think they they seemed a little dreary to me. And I thought like you would, the physical object itself would, wasn't going to inspire someone to learn. And so with kids knitting, 
I was trying to create a physical object that a child or a child at heart would look at and feel like they were invited into it. And you could say similarly, people said they wanted to live inside of weekend knitting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, it's kind of creating these landscapes. We could say maybe like a hospitality center. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. I love it. It's because they have these on the highway and, you know, you pull off the highway and go. I love that idea. Yeah, because I do believe that, you know, creative expression is key to to our wellness. And I think a lot of people in our society seem dissatisfied Mm -hmm. and they're not sure why. And I think creative expression and in many cases, handwork can become a really powerful tool in the same way that exercise helps us feel better, eating nourishing food helps us feel better, connecting with loved ones makes us feel better. I feel like, you know, in the world that I strive to create, to be part of, the doctors, the people we go to when we don't feel well will recommend (laughs) doing pottery or woodworking or weaving or whatever. Yeah, that's true. There's more and more understanding that having connection to other people is important for people's, you know, medical health. But, you know, having a connection to yourself is important, too. Yeah. So you weren't somebody who learned to knit as a child. I did learn to knit as a child, but I remember learning. I don't know how old I was. Ten, maybe. My mom tried to teach me, but I'm left-handed and she's right-handed and she thought she needed to knit differently, which she really didn't need to. So she brought me to my grandmother and said, can you teach her to knit? And my grandmother just taught me the way she knit, which is, I learned continental, which, I mean, I feel like all the different styles of knitting are two-handed operations. So I didn't feel like I was being discriminated against because I was taught by a right-handed person, even though it's left-handed. But yeah, so my grandmother taught me the knit stitch And I did a bunch of that. And I remember very skinny, pointy needles. And, you know, of course, my knitting had like holes and strange increases and decreases. And then I remember my aunt, my mother's sister, taught me how to purl. I I recall working on it and then putting it down at some point. And then in college, when I was studying abroad in France, I knit like three quarters of what was going to be a sweater, but became a vest because it wasn't completed until I got home and there wasn't enough yarn. But then it was when I was after I graduated from college and I moved to New York City and I I know I was 25 years old because it was right when I met my husband and um, I decided to knit him a scarf for our first Valentine's Day as boyfriend, (laughs) girlfriend or whatever. And then that was when like it totally took off. I already had a job in publishing and I thought, oh, my gosh, like I can travel the world and meet knitters and learn so much. And that's, mm-hmm. that's where it all began for me. <laughs> well, I was going to ask you what made you move from cooking, which I think is having a, having a moment and where people are, are thinking about its context and meaning and instead change and find that meaning in knitting instead. I just think that back then what really, it just resonated with me more was the yarn. I, I mean, I worked at a, food magazine that specialized in chocolate. So, um, and I definitely felt a connection to chocolate, (laughs) but, um, you know, it was was mainly all desserts, not, it didn't always have to be chocolate, but it was, it was called chocolatier or chocolatier. 
yeah, I just remember going to this yarn store and like the colors and the patterns were so incredibly beautiful to me. And so that just got me really excited. And I remember knitting that scarf for my husband and it was a tweedy yarn and the color of the little, you know, bits of tweed, I guess, in there would change. So I could just watch the yarn as it slipped through my fingers. And I was so enchanted by it. So for whatever reason, that really resonated with me. And then when I started trying to find out about the history of knitting in different cultures, I just started digging into it and becoming really fascinated by the role of, you know, landscape in the history of knitting. Like, oh, those are the kind of sheep that would flourish on that kind of landscape. So those people use that kind of wool yarn or patterns. And, you know, this country was invaded by that country. And then they brought these motifs with them, or this country was, you know, is cold and snowy seven months a year. So there's all sorts of snowflakes in, in their motifs. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and you could do the same thing with food. And I, I feel like since that time, I have become more interested in those kind of stories with food. But knitting was just what I was passionate about at that time. And then I, I think I also, I had traveled quite a lot during college and and I really love the idea of traveling with a specific interest and then using that as a gateway to converse with different types mm-hmm. of people. And that's what I ended up doing. And I think I, I just any, like, I just had different ideas and I, I'm trying to remember, I guess this was the years mixed, mixed up, but when Piecework Magazine started, I had come across the Orenberg Shawls just yeah. on my honeymoon in Maine and, and saw Orenberg shawls and became really interested in that. And then I wrote to somebody at Interweave and said, I wanted to like go to Russia and meet these people who made these shawls. And then they said they were starting this magazine called Piecework. And could I write for that? And I was like, yeah. So (laughs) that sort of connection with all over the world. So, but I am going to ask to go back and and just get your thoughts about being an editor of craft, oh, right. <laughs> craft books and articles and patterns and the relationship with other people who are, you know, creating projects versus the person who is creating a book or a magazine. I love it. I feel like I always had this, like a fantasy of wanting to be like an acquisitions editor for books. I also had a fantasy of wanting to be the editor of a knitting magazine and And so I got to do that. And then I was offered this position with Abrams to edit books. And so I was like, oh, yes, I want to do that. And I think in both cases, but it's a little bit more dramatic in books. It was the chance to like help somebody else make their dream come true. Mm -hmm. And I love the creative process. And I love working with talented people whose ideas I understand and whose vision I understand and and then kind of the synergy of like all the talent together mm-hmm. you know that you could create something you begins with the seed a small seed like oh you know a book on such and such would be kind of cool and then it leads to you know something that is often better than you could have imagined when you started mm-hmm. and that's such an exciting process so, yeah, I love that. Yeah. And part of the role of the editor is to be both seen and unseen in that people can see your your editorial hand everywhere, 
even as what you're doing is making somebody else's vision visible. Yeah. Yeah, I think it is a balancing act between being seen and unseen, having an ego and putting your ego aside. <laughs> I definitely, my family would agree with this. I, I like being in a position of getting to make, like having the final word or the close to final word. <laughs> so as an editor, I mean, you always, I only wanted to work with people who's, who had an idea that I could relate to that I understood. I, I, because then we could work really well together. You know, if there, we were out of sync, it would not be fruitful for either party. You know, I always wanted to make decisions that were in keeping with the author's vision, of course, but I kind of like sort of managing all the, the pieces of the author's vision, you know, the difference sometimes between what they delivered and what they envisioned, mm -hmm. even sometimes the I the fact that they would have like a really good idea, but not actually have a vision for a physical mm -hmm. book and how to help them develop that. Yeah, all those pieces of the puzzle. And then I didn't always love working with like the salespeople mm -hmm. or what they thought was commercial, but I think I was fine with it a lot of the time. Sometimes, you know, there's between the editorial side and the sales side, mm -hmm. there's some disharmony, but, um, but that's okay. That's just part of the process. But yeah, I, I do love the creative process and I love when people put their heads together and their ideas together and the result is something more special than anybody could have imagined from the beginning. I used to struggle with sales as well. And what finally made me kind of come to terms with it was the sales team gave a presentation and everybody got a copy of a book that she had absolutely loved that didn't work. It didn't sell. And she had also fallen in love with this project as well. But her her job was, you know, figuring out how to get it to the most people. So, you know, making the connection between the authors and editors vision and are they going to be able to explain this to somebody else? And so one of the things that's really cool about creating by hand, knitting, etc., is that the only person to whom the meaning matters is the maker and maybe the recipient. But you don't have mm -hmm. to get that judgment from other people. It's it's meaningful because it's meaningful to you. Right. I mean, I think that's the difference between doing something as like a commercial, like mm -hmm. we're a commercial product versus just a interpersonal exchange. Yeah. And I, I know that a lot of creative people think that they would like to make a career out of say pottery or woodworking or knitting, you know, they think, oh, if I could do this all day and, you know, this could be my life, I could be like a knitwear designer. And there's definitely something really special and the potential for greatness there. But I have met lots of people who have taken something they were passionate about, turned it into a commercial venture, and then felt like it had been drained of their passion because they... Mm -hmm were so focused, had to be so focused on the business side of things, on making what was selling, and that the original impulse was being set aside for other things. And I think that for people that, that are imagining like, oh, life would be perfect if I could mm -hmm. knit her all day, for some of us, finding a balance where you can keep that creative expression, that that thing you're pa really passionate about doing it, like 
creating a balance where you can devote enough time to it mm -hmm. that you could feel fulfilled without putting the weight of financial expectation of approval from outside forces. Um, if you can do that, that can be incredibly satisfying and potentially more satisfying than putting all your eggs in that basket of like, yeah. I'm going to turn this, you know, love for handwork into a business. Just have the basket because you like the basket, not because you have to put all your eggs in it. Sorry. Right. I, I, to, I, couldn't, yeah. I couldn't help it. <laughs> right. Right. And, and I do think that the way our society is structured, there's so much when we meet, like oftentimes you meet someone at a party or any sort of social thing. Well, what do you do? Mm -hmm. Means what is your work? Right. What do you get paid for? Which isn't even always like, what is your work? Because lots of people are doing all sorts of unpaid labor. <laughs> yes. In particular women. And um, I try not to ask that question anymore. I try to open with something different. Like what's your favorite color? Or what did you do that was fun today? Or mm -hmm. something else. But our identity is so wrapped up in what we do for money. Yeah. It doesn't really need to be that way. Mm -hmm. And when we can untangle that, we could sometimes find more satisfaction. So you sort of hinted before that you are working on another book. And at the same time, we've talked about the things that you are pursuing yourself. What is next? What are you working on both as a person who's interested in a creative life and an author? So basically, I am working on a book in which I am going to tell stories about my own making practice in a way that I have not before. Mm -hmm. And that making practice does still include a lot of connection with other people. And so those stories will, it's not just going to be me, 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 but it's going to sort of stem from my own making practice and where that has led me. And then using that as a lens through which to explore our current cultural narrative, which often marginalizes handwork mm -hmm. and how that narrative came to be and how we in, as makers can rewrite that narrative so that I no longer feel like I have to do public relations <laughs> around it. Yeah. So that the value of handwork will be better understood in the culture at large so that makers, people who read the book, my hope is that they will feel inspired and empowered and validated and that they will have a vocabulary with which to not only express their enthusiasm for what they do, but explain why it matters for us as individuals, as community members, as people who live on this planet, mm -hmm. how handwork can be a tool we can use to heal the world. So you say we as makers, and that suggests to me that you're talking about you know, a whole bunch of us, not only a kind of a curated selection, but a broad scope of different makers. Is that right? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's about all of us. It's about all of us sharing the value of our creativity or communicating to others in an impactful way, why this matters, why making by hand, why creativity is so important to our health as individuals, as communities, and as people who live on this planet. And so 
how could people be part of this project? So if anybody wants to share their ideas, that would be so wonderful. I have created a survey that's online. I think I call it the Maker's Way survey. And it's just a series of questions about the role of making by hand in your life. And I am reading all the surveys. For some people, I'm following up to ask additional questions. And it's a way of, for me to reach out and hear from makers of, from all walks of life, all skill levels, all media. <laughs> well, that's really exciting to think that folks who are you know just getting started and folks who have dedicated their lives, anybody who has has maker as part of our, their identity can be part of this project. So right, the more diverse, the better. Well, Melanie, thank you so much for your time. I have so enjoyed this conversation as well as your books, and I can't wait to see what comes next. Oh, thank you very much for having me. I've been happy to talk to you. Thanks to Trinway Silks for sponsoring this episode. Thank you for listening to the Long Thread Podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please rate the show and leave us a comment on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. Thanks again. Thanks again.